I'm Katie Burko, and this is On, a podcast about cultivating student engagement in higher ed. Instructors are always striving for those magic moments in the classroom when everything is just on. More than ever, we can benefit from sharing the strategies that reach our students most inclusively and effectively. This podcast features higher ed faculty and course designers using creative approaches to enhance students' learning experiences and turn engagement on. the distinct pleasure of speaking with two guests, Dr. Jennifer Joe and Dr. Anu Sivaraman. Dr. Jennifer Joe is the Whitney Family Professor of Accounting in the University of Delaware's Accounting and Management Information Systems Department. She teaches mainly graduate level coursework in accounting and analytics, and her research focuses on audit judgment and decision making, fair value accounting, internal controls, and fraud evaluation. Her research is frequently published in premier journals, and so it is remarkable that she is also constantly striving to do innovative things in her classroom, as well as serve the Learner College of Business and Economics as our chief diversity advocate. Together with the Learner Diversity Council, Jennifer has coordinated events that both teach and inspire attendees year after year. Dr. Anu Sivaraman is an assistant professor of marketing at the University of Delaware and a member of the Learner Diversity Council. She teaches both graduate and undergraduate courses in marketing and statistics, and her research focuses on counterfactual thinking and behavioral decision-making. She's won countless awards for both her teaching and service at the University of Delaware, which is no surprise as she is frequently referred to by students and colleagues as someone whose focus is deeply on her students' well-being. Together, Jennifer and Anu have created a new course called Race in Business that launched during the winter of 2021 and received rave reviews from students. I have asked them to join me to discuss the course and its goals and outcomes, why it matters for our students to develop an awareness of bias in their areas of study, and how more faculty might begin to incorporate these critical topics into our courses. Thank you both for joining me today. Would you mind starting by telling us about your new course and how the idea for it developed? So um, I'll start and then Anu could jump in. But for me, it was listening to the students last summer um, when you know we had all those events that occurred. We we witnessed the horrible um, death of, of 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 Floyd. And students on campus were very, of course, saddened about the event. Um, and they, both undergrad and graduate student association, got involved and communicated with the administration some of the concerns they had, where they saw a lack of justice and, and, and equity on campus. And in both letters from students, undergrad students and graduate students, they said, we want to see our curricula involve more discussion and education on race matters and on justice matters. Um, they also said that there was a lack of faculty of color teaching important classes and just teaching in, in across the university in general. And so I was inspired to, you know, deliver what the students wanted to hear. Um, I thought it was important for them to hear it from somebody like myself and from Anu. 
I knew um, she started a book club um, within Lerna College talking about race and social justice issues. And so that's kind of how, we got, you know, I contacted her and said, hey, Anu, are you interested in this? And then she was off to the races. So Anu, maybe you could talk about some of the things that, that you did and what got you excited about it. Sure. Um, thank you for having us, Catherine. It's really exciting to talk about this course for both of us. And I think Jennifer will join me when I begin by telling you this is one of the best things we've ever talked. Um, best experience as a as a faculty member. Um, yeah, that Jennifer said her inspiration came from students. My inspiration came from the other side, the faculty. Um, a bunch of us got together um, in June last year. Um, to read this book, a set of books about uh, social justice, right? Because it was right in the middle of that George Floyd protests and other things. And I was trying to educate myself. And I already had a bunch of people with whom I read books. It was a very informal setting and that started about a year and a half ago, but we kind of go into a lull during the academic year, but we kind of spring back into action in the summer. So for last summer, I chose a couple of books that um, all of us would benefit from reading because we wanted to go back into the classrooms a little bit more educated about the whole issue. And this was an ongoing interest for me. And a bunch of faculty members came back with the explanation that we know the broader issue, we don't know the specifics, number one. And number two, we don't know how to incorporate this into a class about business. How am I going to go into a class about business and talk about the African-American community or the injustices they have faced or slavery or things like that? How am I going to bring it into the classroom? Now, this was a question I have been struggling with, and I have some anecdotal stuff I used to bring into the classroom, but it was never a coherent story. And I like storytelling. So I started doing research into um, how I was going to bring it into a business class. And early last summer, I read this book called Black Fortunes by Wills, which talks about the first set of African-American uh, millionaires and the Tulsa massacre that followed and how it destroyed so much wealth that was accumulated in that community after a lot of work and after literally a century and a half of hard work. Um, just last night, we heard the Tulsa massacre last surviving victims testify. And I'm coming fresh off of hearing that testimony. And it is hard for someone who grew up in this country to ignore that and then say, I'm going to implement diversity policies, right? It, it's not coming from a place in your heart. It's coming from your brain. And things that come from the brain for me do not stick for a long time. Um, it has to come from your heart. You have to believe in why those policies are needed. So when Jennifer said, do you want to teach this course with me? I thought this is a chance to talk about the history of why these policies are necessary and what's the best way to go about implementing them, right? And we can do that change one-on-one, -on -one, even if your organization is not willing to move forward. So we decided to look take this course and say, this is not simply to tell you the value of diversity in an organization. It is to help these future business and community leaders make independent assessments of what happened in the past and what contributions they can make via viable strategies to the present so that the future is better. 
So what were the learning outcomes that the two of you envisioned with that motivation or inspiration in mind when you started talking about course design? Yeah, so I think uh, what Anu said just now is the perfect segue into what we envisioned for the course. You know, it's very easy to talk about what's happening today in a vacuum. And I think this is my biggest concern about conversations that people have when they say, well, why, why don't we see X and why don't we see Y? We don't peel back and look at the historical context that got us to today. And so for one of the key things for us in the course is we wanted people to understand how laws, regulation, and corporate policy that had been put in place for hundreds of years and you know, perpetuate to today, how they have brought us to the point where we are and how these laws differ along demographic populations. And then once we got the students to see the history, then we wanted them to think about how does corporate strategy continue to, to perpetuate and what you would have to do to break that strategy, right? And then I think the last piece was going into the future. Now that the students understood the past and the key factors that are at play, that now they are capable of instituting policy, but not just instituting policy, evaluating policy and questioning policy. Anu, is there anything you wanna add? I agree. Um, it was a lot about getting them to understand how history has been, um, history in school is always discussing topics as a, as a bird's eye view of what happened, right? The slavery happened um, in the 60s. We kind of did everything we can to abolish slavery. You know what? Now we, we set history right. That was the version my daughter was getting at school. And I was not satisfied with that. I don't think we've set history right yet. Setting history right is an ongoing process. If you convey the idea it's done, then everybody will sit back and say, it's done. There's nothing more we can do, but it's not done. If, if you have two African-American professors or five professors of color, we are not done, right? We have to make sure everybody who wanted to be a prof had an equal opportunity to become a professor, right? Didn't have to cross 10 more hurdles than somebody else to become a professor. Um, this understanding among millennials and Gen Zs that the work is done, was starting to take root and that worried me. Um, not, not only as a person of color, if I keep telling them, think of me as someone who's outside of this issue actually looking in because I'm highly privileged. And also because I am what was once projected as a model minority. And I'm telling you as coming from that community that I see this problem. I only face occasional racism, but to live your life among racist comments and to be tarred by them continually has a differential effect. 
So we wanted them to understand what that effect on an individual is, what that effect would be on an organization where those individuals work, but also what would be, what can the future look like if we start to tackle these biases individually and collectively? So give them that little bit of a vision or a taste for the future where things are more equitable, not just equal. And many of our students, uh, I'll tell you, you asked me what the learning outcome was. There was, a, there was one comment that really stuck me when we were going through discussions. One student said, I really did not stop to understand the difference between e equality and equity. And I understood that when I took this course. That's really right? powerful. To me, that is, that is what you want in your future leaders. Yeah, and, and, and even to follow up on that objective, I think we began to feel that we were on the right track from week one when we presented a history of the United States. And our students said to us, we never learned that. We mm. took, and, and remember that all American students are required to study US history in, in high school, right? And also when they are at the university, most of the core curriculum requires some foundational knowledge on US history, but the whole context, we, we treat in America, people act like America began when the British settlers arrived. There was a wasteland, that is the assumption. There was a wasteland, and then we came to claim. And in our course, we said, okay, let's peel that back. Let's think about the millions of people who had a life here. So that's just an example of how we got students thinking about the issue. That must have been really compelling in the first week to feel like you were on the right track with your new course where you were designing all of the material from scratch and, you know, not sure what the reaction would be or the experience would be or the engagement with students would be. Um, so that, that must have been a, a, an encouraging feeling to know that you were heading in the right direction if this was something that they had never heard before. Uh, in conversations with you now and also outside of this conversation, it really sounds to me like the class is not exclusively about race, but rather about the responsibility and the ethics around being a leader or, or becoming a leader and, and how awareness of bias factors into decision-making. Is that, would you say that's a, a, a good assessment of what your goals were? So I think Anu would be good to lead on this. Yes. I, I, we really talked to them like we were talking to CEOs of companies. Like that was our tone. Our tone was here is the past, right? Uh, this is how the future looks. You tell us how the future looks. We, we are giving you data on what was in the past. What can we do for the future? And uh, even, even the project we asked them to do, we said, you, you have the money. You're going to spend it. How are you going to spend it? What kind of initiatives are you going to put it into? 
we wanted them to think of themselves as leaders, not only of organizations, but also of their community, of their group around them, um, of the people around them. So in fact, we had lectures on, um, or we had discussions on uh, how would you ask somebody whether you're, if you, if you had curiosity about another race, right? If you wanted to know more about another race, how can you ask questions without offending them? Um, those were in the discussion papers that they wrote. We looked at their reflections and took the thoughts from their reflection statement that they submitted every week and used them in discussions in the class. And that was important because we wanted them to feel seen, feel heard, um, and then talk to them and ask them what they would do. Because I always believe in the power of vision. If you can envision yourself in that space, you will get closer to what you want your target to be. And I think both of us dealt with them when we were talking with them in that tone. And to them, I don't know if they saw it as a class in leadership, but they definitely saw it as a class in uh, policies. Uh, they definitely saw the outcome of the class one of the outcomes of the class be policies that leaders can implement. We are hoping that when they join organizations, they will talk to their leaders in their organizations and work towards the implementation of policies that are diverse. But also when they become leaders, hopefully they will not forget these lessons. So yeah, I think that um, one of the things I hope that the students got from the course and I, and I, and, and in talking to them, I think they did get it, was to question status quo. I think that's the most valuable thing that we can get as decision makers because we have to look at what goes into the data. So somebody might have a decision set that says, you know, when, when we price for insurance policies, we consider, you know, zip code and, and, and risk factors. But a student who has taken our class, they now know that zip codes are coded with certain demographics and that pricing should factor risk only, that it shouldn't factor race. And so they know now to question when they see or hear a particular strategy to go back and say, what, are, what is the underlying data that led to this? And to ensure that there's equity you know, throughout. And, and although our course was titled Race and Business, we did talk about gender issues as well, right? So, you're both touching on things that make me want to ask, how was the course structured? Yeah, so we were very um, flexible in our structure, but I mean, remember that we were teaching this course in the midst of the pandemic. So we couldn't physically be with the students, but you know, our course was titled a seminar. So, in a, and, and usually in a seminar, there's a lot of discussion, right? And, and um, so we had to think about ways to get the discussion going and we we had lots of breaks in our material so we didn't spend a lot of time saying okay we're going to lecture for two hours today we would talk about an issue and then pause 
We, and asked the students for their interaction. We had breakout rooms where our students could go to the breakout room and discuss the topic amounts themselves before they came back to us. One, one thing I learned in, in um, online teaching is that students tend to like to have their cameras off, but when you put them into breakout rooms to interact, because they're in a small group, they'll take their camera off to do that. And then it gives a little bit of a comfort level. And then they'll turn their cameras on for the rest of the class. So that, that's one thing that we kind of learned, you know, that we should have a lot of discussions um, in the class. And we also use the chat function so that people could write their comments into chat. And then Anu set up a discussion board and she could talk a little bit about that to encourage people who were maybe shy. We also divided the modules. Um, I, don't, I don't think Jennifer mentioned that. We divided it weekly by modules. So the first week was, um, what races are we talking about, right? Native Americans, the model minority, the Asian Americans, the African Americans, each race, we looked at where they came from, who was already here, uh, what was it before the British stepped in, what started happening after, who are the different races, where do they stand right now, right? Are they part of the United States? How, what's the population division right now? So that was week one. Week two was, um, influence of race on economic opportunities. So the basic economic opportunities, food, safety, home buying, right? So what are the disparities there right now? We looked at it by race, who's better off, who's worse off, where do the white people stand compared to the black people, compared to the Asian. So we gave them all the statistics and data and articles to read on what's the current status and what has led to this current status. And this, this is all academic research, right? We are not just taking this out of a hat. We really looked at academic research. We thoroughly vetted what is well-researched and we presented those options. Then we talked about incarceration. What role does that play um, in terms of these communities? Who's heavily incarcerated? Who, what, does, what happens when you put a dad in jail or you put a mom in jail to that family, right? And what happens over generations to that family? What does slavery do to the psyche of a person? Because that is also a kind of incarceration. So the incarceration then, incarceration now, and Jim Crow in the middle, right? So we, we are kind of talking about it from the economic perspective. How much more could we have had? What if, correct? If we had treated them fairly, that's, what, that's the point we want people to arrive at. What if, if everybody had the same opportunity? Um, so we look at those issues and then talk about those and have students talk to us about those and everybody is free to give us their point of view, right? Why should I pay reparations now for something that my forefathers did five generations ago? But I want to make the case to you with facts so that you can argue with facts instead of arguing with emotions. So we are looking at those issues every week. And then the last but one week was current state of business. Is there bias in business now? Not only in hiring and firing, but in the ads that you see, in the books that you read, in the clothes that you wear, in the food that you eat, is there bias? 
right? So we want them to look at marketing right now. We want them to look at finance right now, see if there is bias in not only in hiring and firing, which is typically covered in the course of our diversity, but everywhere else. Um, in fact, we uh, just, just an interesting note, we did a survey with the students in the very first week where I wanted to, them to learn about perception bias. You might claim to be someone who has a very clear line of thinking, um, but bias creeps in without your own knowledge. So I put in a few questions uh, where bias could figure a different answer and showed them their own answers. Mm. And it was, they claimed it was eye-opening to know how surreptitiously it works, how implicitly it works. I think the best way to show implicit bias is to show that it exists implicitly, right? So that is the kind of understanding we want managers to have, that you may not be racist and you might make every effort to not be one, but how do you train yourself to be completely free of bias over time? You can start by knowing what those biases are. Just saying I participate in every diversity initiative put forward by my company is not enough. You have to start making those individual efforts. So it was both looking at the bigger picture of what racism is and its impact on the economy and so on and so forth, and also the, the individual picture. For the big picture, for instance, we showed them a slide where we talked about the economy in 1860 and how the US GDP in 1860, half of it was the value of slaves. Half of the US GDP in 1860 was determined by the value of slaves in this country. So when people say they are free now, aren't they? My argument is, how did you pay them for all that work? Mm -hmm. How did we pay them? How can we pay them for all that work? Because I'm enjoying the fruits of that labor now, right? So that is where we want managers to arrive. Not only, that, not only pay as and pay money, but how can we make it equitable for people? Now, you mentioned discussion with students and, and trying to get them to feel comfortable sharing their reactions. Can you talk more about how you engage students in the material when some students might feel hesitant to share their opinions or their thoughts or their questions, and other students might be feeling sensitive um, for other reasons? How, how did you get discussion going and, and create a space where people felt comfortable sharing and asking questions? Yeah, so I think one of the things is that this course, a large part of this course was weekly self-reflection. So at the end of each week, the students had to write what was their reaction to the material. So we asked them things like, what new did you learn? You know, what kind of reaction you had about what you learned, um, that allowed for a lot of introspection and thinking. And I think having done that, then they're more prepared to come and have the discussion about it. I think also we ourselves were very vulnerable with the students, you know, we, explain to the students that this was the first time we were teaching this class, that race is a very, and race in business is a very complex issue. Um, you know, if you look at our syllabus, you'll see that there's so much to cover and discuss mm -hmm. that just doing it in one course is not possible. 
So we let the students know that we made choices. It might not be the most perfect choice, but these were decisions we made. And so I think coming to them with our own vulnerabilities and saying, look, we're not claiming to be experts. We're not claiming to be perfect, right? Um, and also we want this class to be a safe space. We, we, we let our students know that. And we said, you know, if there's something that we're gonna discuss that's upsetting to you, we give you permission to leave, to turn off the camera, to do whatever it is you need to do. So I think creating that atmosphere, I felt within the class that people felt safe. And I, I shared information with these students that I've never shared with my other students. Um, same, it's, it's uh, in my opinion, the biggest gain from this class was to show ourselves and to show the students we can have a civil discussion about it. Um, in the middle of this course, the January 6th uh, incident happened in Washington. I'm gonna call it an insurrection, it happened in Washington. And that day we were in class when it happened. And the very next day we came back to class and uh, I put up some Twitter posts about the event and asked students for their comments. So things were happening as we were going through the course. Um, and and they could, we could talk about what would have happened if it had been a mob of uh, colored people of color um, on the hill versus who we had there right now and have an open discussion about it. Something that I didn't think I would be able to have in a work setting in a class, least of all, right? So mm -hmm. we had a very open discussion about it and they were able to tell us what they saw and what they felt about it. And uh, they, we, we also talked about uh, race and justice in terms of how police handle cases uh, because the George Floyd uh, case was in the, in the media at that time. So I think being able to discuss all that and the impact that it has on whether media should participate in condemning things like that, right? So that is directly related to business. What is the impact when Big Sporting Goods comes out and says that it supports a Black Lives Matter, right? What is the impact when Ben and Jerry's comes out and says we support Black Lives Matter? What is the impact when a different business comes out and says that they don't support Black Lives Matter? So we were able to draw that into the discussion and have a discussion with the students. And I'm very thankful. And so is Jennifer that they were open enough to have that discussion with us because by then we had had the course for a little bit. So we, we had established that trust. But I think what Jennifer mentioned is very important. We opened ourselves up to them. Um, she told them about how she was raised, where she was raised and you know all the things she's faced in the US. Um, I told them about Simple incidents of racism don't translate into systematic racism, right? So systemic, sorry, system, systemic racism. So you have to understand the differences between these terminologies and you can't say what happens to them happens to me as well, right? It's different, the experience is different. Nobody's negating your experience. You just have to be knowledgeable about what you're saying and when you're saying it. 
understanding terminology seems to be a big issue. Understanding words and using them in the right context is what gives people confidence, I think. So once they kind of understood the terminology, they became very confident about what they write in their reflections and what they say in the classroom. It sounds like it was also just good practice having conversations in a, in a space that's been curated as a community like that because you're processing the events that happened at the Capitol uh, in real time together as a group and hearing other people's open reactions uh, and some of them might be more comfortable than yours, less comfortable, and you can sort of take take all of that into your thinking, which is helpful as you formulate how you feel about something. And, and that wouldn't have happened otherwise. You know, we all absorb the news in a bubble until we start talking about it. And the more opinions we hear, the more different kinds of thoughts we hear about what we see, the better as we try to understand what's happening. So it sounds like that was really probably very supportive to the students in the class and to, to you both as you were processing that live. Mm -hmm. um, it also sounds like you were using the virtual course structure to your advantage in some ways by um, using the breakout rooms, for example, um, having the cameras on and off, which would not be something you could do in a classroom and allowing discussion after class on discussion boards and chat. Do you feel like piloting the course in a virtual environment helped or are there things that you'll pull forward when you do this course in person in the future? Can you talk a little bit about that? I actually think piloting this on Zoom really helped. One, because all of us are in our home and I'm assuming the students are in their space, whatever their space is. When you are in your home, somehow any thoughts you express are private. Uh, you're more, you're, you are physically in a safe space. Um, and if you trust the people you see on screen, you're likely to speak your truth, right? So I feel like being in a, in a sterile, like a classroom kind of environment would have at least, it would have taken us longer to establish that trust. It's the reverse of what happens in my other classes. I think in my other classes, I'm so much better in person. But um, in this class, I think for discussion purposes, or at least to get them thinking from their reflection statements, I could tell that they were very comfortable telling us things that we might not have had had it been at least for the first couple of weeks, we might not have had it had it been in a classroom setting, is my opinion. For, for a course like this, it might take longer for that trust to be established if your physical space is not a space that you see as being safe. Yeah, actually, that's a great answer, Anu. And I think to follow up on that, I think even for the instructors themselves, it was great that you taught this course at home because of the topics that you, you spoke about for the first time, you were discussing very painful facts. And so being able to come off of that and, you know, go to your bedroom, you know, go to your bed and, and just relax where if you were in a classroom, you'd, you know, you'd be in a large noisy environment 
right? The flexibility of being at home, I think, was very helpful because I did need to decompress um, for hours after teaching this material. So you just brought up something that uh, I feel like I need to ask more about. What was the personal toll on you both teaching this and being so vulnerable with the students? You know, it, it was very rough because we, we don't know a lot of American history and why things happen. For example, people talk about, well, why don't people of color own businesses? And then in preparing for this class, the, the depth at which the structures make it so difficult for people of color to own business you know, I had an idea that there was discrimination, but I had no idea how overwhelming it was. Financing, you know, interest rates that are charged to people of color, totally different to white people. Insurance, the inability to get insurance if you are a person of color and a particular, when I say a person of color, I'm talking about blacks and Hispanics in particular, because, you know, Anu um, did a segment on the model minority. And we know that in some instances, the a Asian American community are given special access because people wanna perpetuate the idea that what's happening with blacks and Hispanics is their own fault because look, we've got a good group of minorities over here. But then recent history has shown us now that, you know, once, you, once there's evil, it turns its light on every single community. But let me get back <laughs> to my topic on all these things that we found out. Insurance rates are different, access, you know, um, even pricing, pricing structures, for everything. So it was just, when you see a black or Hispanic person with a successful business, they should get a prize for just surviving. Going back to the history in America, most of the middle class in his, you know, historically gained their wealth through real estate. The GI Bill, supported home ownership. Well, when I looked at the data to see how few Blacks and Hispanics were able to use the benefits of the GI Bill to figure out that Southern politicians wrote specific policies to make it difficult for people of color. And, and, and it's not just Southern politicians. If we looked in New Jersey and New York that Less than less than two percent of the GIs who got help for home ownership were black. I mean, these things are staggering, and having to teach that, you know, it, it, it's very painful because we all pay taxes, like. I contribute 
significantly to my government, state and local government, and I don't have a problem, my federal government, I don't have a problem paying taxes. But it's painful to learn that when I pay taxes for transportation, 70% of the taxes that go into the transportation coffers are targeted towards the white community and the community that really needs transportation help is not getting. So, you know, when we, I'm gonna stop because I could go on and on, Katie. It, it was just not issues from the past, right? As we were going through the, the course, reports came out about uh, COVID-19 death rates being higher in communities of color. The, a major report came out from the CDC and on that day, I was boiling when I went into the class. If you had put a, you know, a container of water on my head, it would have come to boil in like five minutes because I was that mad. This is a historical issue. This is something the CDC should have been able to anticipate, but we don't because we are myopic, right? We, we don't say when we have a pandemic that communities of color are going to be hit first and hit big much bigger than have take a bigger hit than many others we we don't think of it i was mad at myself for not even having anticipated it between all the research i was doing between and and i was mad at the city at the cdc right my students were mad at the cdc as we were going through the course um, in towards the end of the course uh, the last topic was about locations of uh, retail outlets and how there are no, there are grocery, there are food deserts in the US. There are no grocery stores or pharmacies in many communities of color. And one of the students brought up the issue. So if we have vaccines, how are they gonna get it to them? There are no hospitals, grocery stores or pharmacies in communities of color. Led me to do research for an entire evening trying to find out the answer to that question. And I found it in dollar stores. Hmm. That's the only retail outlet that exists in all communities of color in the U.S. And I walked into class and the next day I produced the article and I said, I'm ashamed of myself. This is the answer I have. As a country, we should be ashamed of ourselves that we don't make it mandatory for grocery stores, pharmacies and hospitals to operate in all zip codes. And how is that it, the same reaction the students were having? You said this happened, the report came out from the CDC during uh, the five weeks that you were teaching. Were the students at that point all ready to uh, consider this issue and, and did, it, did it foment discussion I in class? I went over their reflections this morning and one of the reflections seems to suggest that it's no surprise because we are looking at historical data. So if you ask me, have we come a long way in the last hundred years in making resources equitable? No. I can, I can tell you food deserts in the US where you have to walk 20 plus miles to go to the nearest grocery store, or you have to go to your neighborhood, uh, you know, like your 7-Eleven or your bodega to get your food supply. And what fresh food are you gonna get there? Right. Right? So then comes the question, what action can I take? 
correct? You, you then have to identify businesses that do operate in those environments and encourage them. You have to talk to your local lawmakers. You have to put pressure on businesses. It is not going to be quick change, but it gets them to start thinking about what and where the change can come from. And Katie, I want to, you know, expand on, on you, you just asked, like, did the students see it? Well, our final project um, of the course was JP Morgan Chase had just announced that they were going to spend, um, was it 30 billion? Mm -hmm. 30, $30 billion, right, on race and social justice. And so they put out this huge announcement. And so our, our assignment to the students was to look at J.P. Morgan Chase's um, announcement and then tell us what were their comments, like evaluate the project. So not only did we say go in and examine it, but also critically evaluate it. And we said, if you had an audience with the board of directors at JPMC, what would you discuss with them about this project? And it was amazing to us because some of our students did things that we had not conceived of. For example, related to Anu's um, point about there being health deserts and food deserts, our students pointed out that they did research about where JPMC's um, businesses were located. And they said, JPMC is saying that they're going to spend money, but we know that access to wealth building perpetuates racial disparities. And JPMC has the ability and they haven't done anything about this. Then they did research and found out that there were several employees suing JPMC for racial discrimination. Mm. And they said, well, what has JPMC done about this? They started looking at the leadership team, the boards of JPMC. So I, I was heartened by one, there was one group in particular that just did a very thorough job. And then they said, well, JPMC has made these statements, but we don't see any depth. And they, they had lists of questions and issues that, you know, they said, we want to see some substance to this. And so from our view, that was one way we sort of self-assessed self the success of the course. I think... With the, uh, the undergraduate level, if we can get them sensitized to the issues out there, this is a generation that takes action, right? So, so not discussing the issues or not giving them an avenue to come ask questions and discuss the issues with us is unfair to them. Um, I think their education is incomplete without it. Um, when I came to this country in 1998 to learn about businesses in this country so that I could use it when I'm ready to teach, I had to learn a lot about the history of business in this country. Um, and when reading about that, that history, I don't think I was sensitive to the issue of racial injustice. 
I thought like everybody else that, hey, Martin Luther King, hey, you know, voting acts, voting rights act, everything's normal. You know, there is a little bit of racism here or there, but we can handle it. Um, living here for more number of years than I've lived outside of the US now, I know it's a systemic issue. I know it's there in our very breadth and roots. And this generation is yet the best hope for making the most progress because they are really interested in it. And I think what Jennifer and my generation can do is at least educate them about it. And they seem to be uh, tuned to listening. So that's good. They listen and they make their own evaluations. So that, that is what we were hoping they would do. And we saw evidence of that in that final project they did about how JPMC should spend their money. It sounds like that was such a strong indicator of the success of just talking more. You've mentioned several times, you know, we, we couldn't be perfect at this. It was the first time, but it didn't, it doesn't need to be perfect to get that outcome, right? You see the students thinking in this way that it must have been overwhelming to read their project results and, and see them thinking critically like that. You asked us about the toll it took on us. Um, I'm not someone who's ever had to cry unless it was at a student's graduation, but I teared up a few times reading some of those reflection documents because they were, they came from the heart. They came from a place where they were telling us about what they have witnessed or you know, what they have seen happen to others or even commentary on a general social issue. Um, and it was uh, from a place where they had understood um, the depths of the issue. You can never experience it firsthand if you are not a person who's, of, uh, who's black in this country, right? But you can come close to that experience if you're able to at least put yourself in their shoes. And uh, we saw many of them come close to that experience. And that is very important if you wanna change the situation. It sounds like you're doing exactly the job you set out to do, uh, creating thoughtfulness in our future leaders, which is really, you know, hearing Jennifer talk about this class for the first time a few weeks ago, I just felt so proud at hearing the students as well talk about their experiences, you know, just as a bystander watching what I know our future leaders will be thinking about, talking about with their colleagues. It just, it made me really proud to be a blue hen because those students represent us and, and will be you know, making, making thoughtful choices uh, around, you know, reducing bias. Uh, around responsibility to the communities they work in. It just, it, it's, it was really, so you too must feel incredibly proud of what they did. Yeah, it was, it was, it was very, I was very proud when they presented and one of our alum um, following the presentation said, you, you students don't know how much valuable information you have gained. Um, he said, just listening to you speak, I see that you are gonna be very valuable employees. And so that was heartening. So because you've both been inspiring others at UD to incorporate discussions of bias, including racial bias and its impacts into other classrooms around campus, 
I want to transition the discussion to a broader conversation, if you don't mind, about how others can accomplish this goal or similar, whether it's, you know, developing a course related to their topic or just inserting, say, a module or one discussion. So uh, who should be incorporating these activities, um, discussions around race and bias and ethics in their courses? I mean, I think it should be discussed everywhere. So, you know, this has always been my view that if we are educating the students um, to incorporate all facets, then we probably would not need a course like this because I could think of every single class. So I'm going to let Anu talk about the courses she's familiar with in management, but I could talk about econ when you know when we teach people you know demand and supply um, contributes to pricing and that you know people are rational in their decision making but then we peel back and we see that race factors into pricing you know we demonstrated to our students that a something a finance class could teach that bond pricing for historically black colleges that bear the same risk as a private predominantly white institution, that the bond pricing for the historically black college or university is higher. So what do we tell our students when we teach them finance? We say, okay, risk is what's gonna determine the rate. But there was another factor. So if you're teaching a course in finance, that's something you need to tell your students. When you're teaching a course in, in, in transportation or you know, if you are in hospitality, are you telling your students that on the Southeastern coast of the United States where the, the hotels that generate some of the, the highest revenues for their companies that the land that was there was taken from black people. That, you know, after slavery, they were pushed out towards the water because inland was considered prime territory. But that when things changed, they were pushed out. If you're, you know, there's so much to teach in history. If you're teaching agriculture, what about the black farmers? So I think every single topic, you, you know, whatever course you're teaching, there's opportunity to bring this into the classroom. And it's up to the professor to think about, well, how can I present this material? And, and maybe Anu could share a little more, some more examples from her field. As a, I think generally as educators, we should at least try to find uh, opportunities to include this. So when I tried to find it, Jennifer enlightened me about an acknowledgement she uses in class about how the land that we stand on when we teach, right? The university stands on, we have to acknowledge where it came from. Right, to begin with, as educators, we should learn to um, understand that bias comes in everywhere, no matter how educated you are. So um, 
for example, I always turn on the anonymous grading option. I don't want to know who I'm, whose work I'm grading. Many kinds of biases can creep in. Who knows? Race could be one. Um, but another thing I also look at is, do I have first generation students in my class? First generation at the university. Uh, first to go to university. Typically, many of them tend to be people of color. Um, and if you do have them, acknowledge them and help them because they may not have the kind of guidance uh, at home um, about college life, right? So at least making yourself open to that and letting your students know so whoever who wants a little bit extra help can come to you. Um, and another thing is if you are in the sciences, acknowledge mistakes from the past where we show our students examples of medical textbooks still three, four years ago, we're talking about how certain races exaggerate pain compared to other races. Mm -hmm. um, I'm someone who suffers from chronic illness and pain. And I was like, that makes sense. As a woman, uh, doctors know that women don't exaggerate, you know, women tend to subdue pain. But as an Asian American, I'm looked at someone as someone who exaggerates pain. I don't know which one of these biases is playing into what my doctor's listening to, right? If I make them aware that I'm aware of this bias and I'm really not exaggerating, this is the kind of level of pain I'm feeling right now, that might be a little bit more helpful for them to know. Uh, but textbooks still five years ago used to say that certain people of certain races exaggerate pain or they exaggerate problems uh, or they might do so for certain reasons. Five so, years ago. Uh, five years ago till it was pulled out of textbooks. So you have to kind of uh, acknowledge issues and not break them because they have been addressed so that if you tell people what issues happened in the past, they will not only watch out for those that have been corrected, but also make sure they don't happen again, right? So it's important to acknowledge issues that have happened in the past. And I think every discipline has issues um, and should acknowledge that. Uh, with respect to marketing, personally, I try to play ads that have many type of protagonists, not just a white person, because my audience is predominantly white. I'm not going to play something that's predominantly white. I try to talk about issues, but I'll give you an example. In stores, I don't know if you've ever noticed this, um, hair products that cater to people of color is always kept under lock and key. Uh, uh, why? because they believe that people of color are likely to shoplift those products. That's the clear argument for it. There is no need to put a, all other kinds of shampoo on an open shelf and then put products of color under lock and key, right? So you have to see those kind of issues and bring it up with the retail environment that you are operating in or stop supporting those kind of businesses. Um, if those happen, those decisions are yours, but knowing those issues happen, it's my job to tell you that. And so when I discuss retailing, I tell them about the good side of retailing. I also tell them about the issues in retailing. And I do, I've learned not to ignore issues of race because they belong in a sociology class or in a history class. I think they belong everywhere. That's, it's up to the professor to decide how much and what to discuss. But we are all educated enough to make those decisions. So if we should all start thinking about, and I teach a data science course or a business analytics courses. So uh, 
you know, to me, this has become just from conversations with Jennifer and attending the Learner Diversity Council events, this has become something I'm thinking about a lot. Um, and I'm not exactly sure where to start. Um, I've just developed... What's that? Algorithms. <laughs> oh, yeah. So the last Learner Diversity Council event was the Coded Bias documentary and discussion. And I, I had strong reactions to the, to the, the, the documentary. It just, it, it, was, it was surprising and shouldn't be, uh, right? That, that it matters, um, you know, that we check for error and bias in our errors. And so I wrote a, a response to my students to and 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 gave extra credit for attending and watching the documentary. I just felt like this was something everyone needs to see and think about um, because algorithms are our future. So I, I think that's a you know I think I want to work it in as a discussion perhaps and a required assignment next semester because it just feels so integral to the class. But I was going to ask you know where it's where I've been thinking and maybe that feels obvious now that I've seen the documentary and it, it makes a, a connection to my class. How do you recommend other people get started? Should we start small? Do you have suggestions for best practices? What are your thoughts about, you know, what would you recommend to someone who's thinking about how to get started? I think um, whatever makes you comfortable. That's the first thing I would say for the professor is do a little bit of reading. I think one of the things we're trying to do in Learner is to build a repository of inf you know, information where you can go. There's so many cases. We didn't even discuss with you that our students um, actually had case studies where they did analyses in groups. Um, Anu found terrific cases for them to work on. We had um, one of our assignments that I, that's exciting that I, I, I mean, exciting is probably not the right word, but um, I would say that instills a lot of thinking was she had a worksheet and, and had people compare if there were different income levels and they had a loved one who was incarcerated, how would their budget go towards paying their own bills? And then for somebody who's incarcerated, that person has to consider, you know, phone calls um, at companies that make so much more money off of selling um, services to the incarcerated. So just from that little example, I could see so many courses being relevant. If you teach accounting, budgeting is a topic, right? And that's an issue. Where is the budget going? If you teach accounting, revenues. One of the things we discovered is that one of the top 10 corporations that profit from the incarcerated population is one of the big four accounting firms. Wow. So marketing to the prison population, again, the economics of the of incarceration and how incarceration has become so built in to state and local government as a revenue generating, um, you know, operation. It's you know we tend to think in the population when we hear our politicians that 
prisons are, and, and jails are all about crime and punishment. But when you peel back, you see that it is revenue generating for law enforcement and it's revenue generating for our state and local government because all of the fees and the things they charge and who is being charged? It is the poor. Mm. So we, you know, we hear a lot of times people talking about wealth transfer and they argue against that the wealthy people should not lose their assets to the poor population. In reality, what we have is wealth transfer from the poor towards the rich because when our state and local government is extracting fees and money from the poor people to service, right, our municipalities that benefit all the citizens, where is, that, where is the reality of that wealth transfer? I, I want to slightly differ from what Jennifer said. I would say start small. You might know a lot about the topic. You might be extremely comfortable. Um, but the audience, even though you're, an, you're new to them at the beginning of every semester, the audience expects a kind of teaching, right? So you cannot start a core dump right off the start and then expect them to digest it. It's better to start small with a few examples here and there, uh, just highlighting the issue. And once you whet their appetite, if you... Uh, you know, once you wet their appetite, you will see that they come asking for more and then you can direct your resources to answer specific questions that come up. Um, instead of having already developed everything that you want to say and sticking to that, this, this is almost like getting audience feedback after a few. Just to give you some, uh, an example, the very first time five years ago when I started incorporating uh, information about bias into my courses, I started talking about cognitive dissonance because it was part of my curriculum. It was part of the course I was teaching, but I gave examples about cognitive dissonance when it comes to data related to uh, global warming. Uh, I saw the level of interest and the amount of discussion that, gen that came out of it and the questions that came out of it. And I started incorporating more and more examples in response to the questions that came throughout the lecture about global warming. Um, then I started talking about gender differences and questions started popping up. Like, why are they charging more for the same scooty that is in pink versus that's in red? And how are companies determining how much more to charge? You start talking about pink tax and then a little bit more, right? So you're kind of wetting their appetite. So I like to start small and then go big. I did the same with... Um, race-related issues and with uh, sexual orientation-related issues in the class. Mm. Uh, this semester, actually, like Jennifer was saying, you can, you can incorporate it wherever you want. If you have a slightly, I don't know, creative thinking, I guess, it just occurred to me three days ago that I'm teaching margins and markups to my students, right? Profit margins to my students. So I wrote down an exercise that Jennifer and I taught in that course where we were looking at the profit margins of uh, companies that sell to jails versus companies like AT&T that sell phone services to us. 
So my current profit margin calculation for fall, the course, in the course, students are going to create it for two scenarios and compare the profit margins of three people paying certain kinds of money and people who are incarcerated paying X times that much, right? When they are wow. availing the same services. Um, in both cases, they're just learning to calculate profit margins. But I want them to know the issue exists and then depending on the kind of questions they ask, I'll decide if I can and or cannot talk more about it, about that particular issue of incarceration later in the course. If they do ask questions, I have material, I have, you know, I already have the knowledge, but I can pick and choose based on their questions at that point. That's interesting. So you're incorporating things that are like current events almost, because you mentioned talking about COVID, you mentioned talking about incarceration, but you're having these bigger conversations sort of on demand when the students are bringing those questions to you. That's, uh, right. that's a, a thoughtful, a really thoughtful approach that, you know, I, I can envision myself doing something similar where I use a data set that's inspired by a topic and then see how in depth the student's analysis becomes, you know, maybe there are examples of bias within a data set that they can uncover and start asking their own questions about. Because um, you don't want it to come to a point where they tune off because they're like, why is this woman talking about race in the course of our marketing? And then the switch turns off completely, right? So, so you want the switch to be on and the light to glow a little bit brighter. Uh, so how do we go about doing that without the switch turning off completely, and then they're not even getting the basic marketing knowledge. So that is the that is the tightrope I think all of us walk on. And this works for me, may not work for others, but starting small and then presenting it in a manner that whets their appetite and then they come back for more seems to work for me. Is there anything that someone who's new to having perhaps sensitive conversations in their class should avoid? I would never call on anyone to have a discussion. This should be organic. So I would not make it an assignment where if you're, if you're used to calling, cold calling, I would never do that. I think many of okay. us don't cold call anymore, but if you're used to cold calling, I would not do that in this at all. I would also not, I've tried not to use a person's race while eliciting and comment. I would never say, as a white person, what do you think? It sounds stupid and it sounds like something nobody would say, but I see that so many times in public discussions and television on, and on television that it makes me squirm. Um, I would not use that person's race, gender, or any other attribute in that discussion apart from what comes out of their mouth. I would not use anything else in that discussion. Um, if discussions are hard or students are not participating, written discussions, written reflections really bring out a lot. But bringing that back into the classroom orally without quoting anyone um, directly and without saying Sam said this or Tom said that, simply using their quotations but not attributing it to anyone makes them open up more, it looks like. That's what we have from anecdotal data, but Jennifer, you can add more. 
No, I think those are great points. And actually what we found is sometimes when we say somebody said X, the student themselves will come in and say, that was my comment. And let me tell you a little bit more about it. So it seemed the fact that the professor was willing to talk about it, you know, there was some pride in, in their response. Um, I totally want to second what Anu said about attributing, you know, attribution to specific students because of their race. When we had the learner listening sessions in the summer to, to, to hear how our students of color felt about their experiences, this was a major complaint that students had that they, they said um, some professors put them in groups based on their ethnicity and they were very upset about this. And another comment was being asked to be the spokesperson for, for their race was something that was totally untenable. So I agree with um, Anu on, on the points that, that she has made. But I think the most important thing for the professor to, to create um, when they're having these conversations is to tell people that we are in new territory in the United States, in the business school, you know, on having these conversations. Let's be realistic. Racism didn't start with George Floyd. Racism didn't start in the 1960s, right? That, that's what our course is talking about. All of this stuff. So if we have 400 years plus of a very complicated history, don't think that you can jump into a conversation and, and have the perfect conversation when you start, right? So for me, when I'm talking to my students or anyone, I'll say, look, I care about this topic, but I'm not an expert. I don't have all the answers. So grant me some space that I might make mistakes. And I grant the same to you, that you, know, you might say something that I think is off and I'll ask you and tell you why it's off to me, but I'm not gonna hold it against you. I think that's a very important thing for the instructor to let the entire class know. And this will head off negative feelings from any of the students. That's really helpful. I had one question about what to do in class discussions where if they get too heated um, or, or if it starts a class discussion and somebody takes the direct opposite side of what you're saying, right? All of this is a conspiracy theory. It never happened, right? So this, all of this is a thing, you know, imagined concept. What do you do? How do you handle that? Uh, I don't know the perfect answer to that. This is how I plan to handle it. If it comes up, I'm gonna say, hey, this is an example to explain X concept. This is happening in the world right now. If you have 
theories or, uh, or questions about why this is happening or how this is happening, I'm happy to discuss this with you and the rest of the class after these 90 minutes end. We can stand out in the corridor. I'll tell you what I know, you tell me what you know. Neither one of us has to win this argument, but we can learn from each other. That was going to be how I handled it. And I also tell my students, just because I have the bully pulpit, please don't take everything I say as true. If you think that this is not how people who are incarcerated are treated because you know someone or you had firsthand experience or whatever it is, come back and tell me. So I can add that to my knowledge. And I can say, this is what public data says, but this is what anecdotal data says. So I'll be able to then present both sides of the story. My job is to present the facts, right? If there is any fact correction to be made, you make your case. And we will together arrive at a judgment as to whether it's fact or not. Because the whole point of learning is inquiry. And if we are not doing that, neither one of us should be in this place. So that is my answer to whatever comes up and listeners can tell me if that's the right way to handle it or there are better ways. I'm happy to hear that, but this is what I have planned. And I think what Jennifer said at the very beginning, you have to make yourself vulnerable. Um, I'm happy to stand there and say, I've been in this country only 20 some years. This is my understanding of the situation. And this is what's happening in business and this is how they're related. And I'm looking to experts and data to give you this information. And I'm here for you to discuss that with me. I may be wrong and I'm happy to correct myself if I'm wrong, but make your case first, right? So that, that is vulnerability is key. If you make yourself vulnerable, I think they're willing to learn and they're also willing to teach. So that makes it a happy job on the whole. All of these suggestions are, are helpful to making me as someone who's new to incorporating these topics into my class feel more comfortable with the uncertainty around what might come up, which students' feelings um, you know, might become overwhelming during class or which students might have really opposing viewpoints. You know, those are those are questions that certainly come up and um, it, your suggestions really help lay the path for for how to, you know, avoid anyone feeling like they can't share or like that that I know everything about a topic that I I need to learn a lot more about. Uh, you know, so the, so those are really helpful suggestions. Thank you. As a final question, what does the future look like for this course for you both? Should the learner administration give us the opportunity, we will be happy to offer this course anytime they open you know, it as a course offering. We're gonna be happy to deliver the course. And um, I look forward to a future where the Learner Diversity Council could be offering a certificate course on this topic to people in the business community already who can't take advantage of our course. With respect to this course, like Jennifer said, anytime the university wants to open it up, we are there. I would love to work with current managers 
um, like an MBA course or an MBA module on this. Uh, we are currently talking to undergraduates or future managers, but I would love to hear the views of current managers, see what they already know, see what they're already doing, and then use that perspective in this course. This was both an undergraduate and a 600 level, a graduate level course. But like I said, we had under a month to prep for it and to get it approved. Uh, so we didn't advertise much. Hopefully next time we run it, it'll be run as a, a 600 level a course that students will want to participate in and we'll have more of those students instead of just one like last time. That would be great perspective to hear students, undergraduate students and graduate students who are already working talk to each other in that space. It gives a very different perspective on the issues and the solutions, most importantly. As you've mentioned uh, already, uh, there's way too much to talk about on this topic for a short conversation, but it, it, your time today is really helping me think about how I can do more to engage students in thought about bias and its ability to remain undetected, if not pointed out or actively uncovered, especially in a class like a business analytics course. So I really appreciate you both joining me today to discuss what you're doing to educate students. And I also appreciate your willingness to educate all of us uh, in the process. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Katie, for having us. That's it for this episode of On, a podcast about cultivating student engagement in higher ed. If you liked this episode, don't forget to subscribe to the show in your podcast app so episodes find you as soon as they're released. If there's interest, I'll keep developing this platform for sharing great engagement ideas. Thanks for listening.